morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. It is a joy to worship together again this morning with you all. For the message this morning, I invite you to the book of Colossians. Several months ago, I brought a message from the first part of this chapter, and I want to pick up today in verse 15. first part of this chapter, Paul is writing to the Colossians, admonish them, admonishing them to walk worthy of the Lord. And verses 13 and 14 outline what Jesus did for us in his redemptive work on the cross. He delivered us and he transferred us. He first delivered us from the control of darkness. And secondly, he transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now in this section, the Apostle Paul moves on from what Jesus did, and now he talks about who Jesus is. Then he goes back to a little bit of what Jesus did in relation to who he is. So we want to look at that this morning. And these verses give us an important understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his deity. Let's read starting at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? All things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature, which whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church. I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Titled the message is in Christ in you, the hope of glory, taken from verse 27. Notice that Paul begins by making a very powerful and clarifying remark about who Jesus is. He simply says he is the image 
of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the God that, that you can see. The image in the Greek, the word is icon. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image is used most often when describing the Greek word icon. Two other words also describe, used to describe this Greek word are likeness and form, but most often it is translated image. So Jesus is the representation of God to our mortal eyes. That is important because God is invisible. We are told that he cannot be seen. And Jesus is the likeness. He is the image. And he is the representation of God that you and I can see. So how close of an image is that? Is it kind of close? Is it like a father and son? Where you look at the son and say, I see the likeness there. Where you say, you look like your dad. Is that the kind of likeness we're talking about? There was a time when Jesus was talking to his disciples and talking about the close connection he has with his father. And Philip spoke up and said, it's John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it sufficeth us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? Philip has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I may look like my Father, but I still can't say if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. But I could say, you might say, you see a younger version of my Father. Jesus made it clear that when you've seen me, you have seen my Father. To know me is to know Him. To see me, to hear me is to hear Him. He is more than just a representation that is similar. He is the exact likeness. The Greek word icon actually includes the idea of representative too. Not just a representation, but a represent, representative. Adam was our first representative who failed miserably. And Jesus then came as God's own son to represent us, which he did on the cross. All these definitions we're looking at this morning, we're looking at here in the first statement Paul gives us, seem to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Then the Apostle Paul goes on to speak of the firstborn over all creation. This statement seems to speak of Jesus as God's first creation. What does firstborn mean? What did Paul refer, or why did Paul refer to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. As we study the Old Testament, <clears throat> in ancient, ancient culture, the firstborn son would receive a double portion of his father's estate. There was a special place for the firstborn son in every family. Then over the years, the term firstborn began to mean not so much the first in line of birth, but it began to speak of preeminence, of importance, we find it used in the Bible where it's not spoken literally of a firstborn, but it's actually spoken 
of a first in quality or first in rank. We find an example of this in Psalm 89. Let's turn to that. Psalm 89. Verse 20. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. And drop down to verse 27. It says, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God calls David the firstborn. And then he even uses that quality term where he says, the highest of the kings. The fact is, David was not the firstborn king. And he certainly was not the firstborn in his own family. I believe he was actually the lastborn of the sons of Jesse, if I'm not mistaken. So this term firstborn here is being used to speak of preeminence in the quality of David's kingship in Israel. And that is how Paul is using it here in Colossians when he speaks of Jesus as preeminent over everything. One thing that we see consistently throughout the Bible is that Jesus is God. So firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus is created because God was not created. Now I want to look at a few verses that give us this idea of Jesus as God. First one is in John 1.1. You don't need to turn to this one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. Not only was the Word with God, but John tells us, and the Word was God. He makes it clear the Word was God. And later in the book of John, we have an interesting conversation where Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he makes reference to Abraham and how that Abraham had seen his day. In fact, he said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. The Jews then said, you're not even 50 years old. And you see Abraham? Then Jesus said to them, John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I became. That would have been incorrect. Or it would have been correct had he been, had he been a created being. But Jesus used the divine name here, I am. The same name that God used with Moses when he declared himself, declared himself from the burning bush. Moses asked him, when I go to the Jews in Egypt and they ask me who sent me, who do I say sent me? I am. The Lord said, tell them, I am sent you. So here we see that Jesus used the same divine name, I am. The Jews knew that Jesus used the divine name. The Jews, what did they do? What was their response? They immediately looked for stones. They looked for rocks to kill him because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. So they did understand what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. Here in Colossians, Paul isn't contradicting that because the rest of Scripture makes it clear who Jesus is. Firstborn means preeminent. Firstborn in quality. One more in Isaiah. God speaking to the Jews, he says, this is Isaiah 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, 
and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. The God who created all things, the one who has always been, says before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Verse 16, Colossians 1, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Here Paul tells us that Jesus is the creator. Who does Genesis tell us created the heavens and the earth? Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that is what Paul is telling us here in Colossians. By him all things were created. Not only were they created by him, but they were created for him. Let's look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Two statements. He is before all things. That means Jesus is eternally existent. He is before all things that were created. He is before all creation. He is eternally existent. He has always been. The second thing we see here is that in Him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who sustains the universe. He literally sustains the created universe. He made it and He sustains it. The verb in the Greek that is used here speaks of continuous action. He is continuously sustaining. He is the one who holds it all together. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus' unique role in God's redemptive plan. He begins by saying he is the head of the body, the church. This is a picture that Paul often uses when he talks about Jesus in relationship to the church. He speaks of it as as he would, or as you would think of a human body, where you have a head and you have a body. You have a human body, and your human body is controlled by your head. And in your head you have a brain. It's the center of where your intellect and understanding is. It's the same way with the church. A human body has a head in the same way the church also has a head. And that head is Jesus Christ who controls his body. Paul goes on to say that he is the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. Remember the context is his role in redemption in relationship to the church. He is the beginning of God's redemptive work and God's plan of redemption. He is the firstborn from the dead and in everything. When he says he was the firstborn from the dead, it doesn't mean Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. There were people who were resurrected before Jesus was resurrected. So why is Paul using firstborn here? It does mean preeminent. 
but it also refers to the firstborn of a different kind of a resurrection. Everyone who was resurrected prior to Jesus died again. They weren't raised to never die again. Jesus was the first one raised to never die again. He was the first one to receive a new resurrection or a new resurrected body. He was the firstborn as it related to that. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Notice the switch here. Paul had been talking about his deity, and now he's talking about the humanity of Jesus. In his human form, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in that human form. It was inhabited by the person of Jesus. This word dwell in verse 19, in the Greek it speaks of something permanent, not something temporary. It is not a temporary dwelling. It's a permanent dwelling. And it's a permanent dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is also a person from human perspective. The permanency of God dwells also in his humanity. He is speaking here of the merging of Jesus' human and divine being. Paul is speaking of Jesus reconciling all things through his blood. These references speak of the human side of Jesus, the one who came to represent us as mankind, to reconcile us. Look at the wording Paul uses here in verse 20. I'm going to read it from the NIV. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, that's speaking of Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Reconcile is a verb. The past tense is reconciled. In the definition, it means to cause to coexist in harmony. So to reconcile, to coexist in harmony. The Bible repeatedly talks about the need for reconciliation between God and man because of the gulf that was created between God and man because of sin. In Paul's words, we were alienated from God with desperate need of reconciliation. In reconciliation to God, we needed to be reconciled to God because we were the ones who violated the relationship. He did not need to be re reconciled to us. Man was the one who sinned. When you need reconciliation in marriage, it always goes two ways. Reconciliation needs to go both ways for it to work. But in the reconciliation we need from God, to have God, it was all on our end. We were the sinners, and God was the offended. And reconciliation is the act whereby God, through Christ's atonement, brings men who are at odds with him back into a peaceful and proper relationship with himself. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Jesus reconciled us to himself because he was the offended party. God in human flesh. He didn't just do the reconciling or create a means by which we could be reconciled to God. He was the party we needed to be reconciled to. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians, but in a little different way. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. God and Christ are used interchangeably in that work of reconciliation that was needed between God and man. Verse 20 talks about through the blood of the cross. Again, we notice where the peace was made. We don't make our own peace with God. Jesus made peace for us through his work on the cross. Verse 21, and you, who, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. We were alienated from God. Maybe you, knew, you know someone who is alienated. We were alienated because of our sin. But after the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished so that we might be reconciled to God. Here we have such an incredible picture of God's mercy. It says we are now presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is our position now. We were once alienated. We were cut off. Now we are presented to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has done a work to make us holy and blameless in God's sight. The reason for the alienation is gone. Paul speaks about redemption that is such a blessing along with all the wonderful effects of what Christ did for us on the cross. Reconciling us to himself, making us holy, blameless, and above reproach. He bridged that gap for us. Then Paul adds these words in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, become a minister. This verse begins with the word if. And if is used before introducing something that is necessary for a given proposition to be in force. I will do this if you do that. We use the word if often. And before all the things Paul is speaking of here can be enforced, all the blessings, all the wonderful things, before they can be put in force, there is a requirement. And that requirement is faith. Not just faith, but continuing in the faith. Look at the words he uses. You must be well-grounded 
or stable. You must be steadfast. He is talking about a faith that is stable, one that is grounded, one that is steadfast in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We do good works as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith, and we are kept by faith. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 23. He begins by telling us about all the blessings that are yours in Christ. He tells how that you have been reconciled to God. Then in verse 23, he tells us, if you continue in the faith. I believe that is why Jesus posed the question he did in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 8b, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Jesus is not looking for good works so that you'll be saved. Good works are important from the standpoint of your reward, but they cannot save you. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will we find faith on the earth? Faith in His finished work, as a complete work. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. So he was suffering at this very time. But those suffering is a whole ministry. This topic of rejoicing and suffering is one that he spoke of often. In, the passage, in those passages where Paul talks about suffering, he's together a little bit how he viewed suffering and how you and I should review, view suffering as it relates to being a believer and suffering for the Lord. Paul suffered for the sake of the body of Christ, the church. Paul, like Jesus, was an other-centered person. Paul's afflictions enhanced his ministry. Turn with me to Matthew 5. I want to read a few verses there. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering for Jesus is always connected with glory. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In Romans 8.16 and 17, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this idea of suffering is always connected with the glory we're going to share with him. When the early disciples experienced suffering, their response to it would be rejoicing because they made that connection with glory. Think of that the next time you're ridiculed for your belief in Christ. Remember, Jesus is the head of the body. We're the body. When your body hurts, is your head unaware of it? Our head is intimately connected with the rest of our body. This past week, I got a barb stuck in my leg. And I was, my head definitely was connected. The connection was made between the head and the hurt. Jesus is aware when you are mocked, rejected, hurt, or made fun of. What should our attitude be towards suffering? Peter sums it up this way, 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And in speaking of the church, Paul continues in verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister. The NIV says servant there. According to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Stewardship is when God gives you something that belongs to Him. Verse 26 talks about the mystery. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. What about this mystery? Hidden from ages. It's not so much of a mystery anymore. The mystery is He is talking about is the fact that the Gentiles can be part of the kingdom of God. That was a mystery. It was not revealed. But this mystery is not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Are now brought up, or they're brought in, and there is no distinction between the two groups. Paul expounds on the mis mis this mystery in Ephesians 2. I want to turn to that. Ephesians 2, verse 12 to 19. That at times you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar, were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the en enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. 
and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This was a mystery that God had revealed. And Paul had the stewardship of that revelation, of that mystery, and he expounded on it in the passage we just read in Ephesians. In speaking to the saints, the Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of the most incredible revelations that God has made known to the saints or to the church. Riches of the glory that are ours. Christ in us. He living in us is our glory. His abiding presence in us. Earlier we talked about glory and its connection to suffering. But that is not our hope of glory. We don't go around hoping that we're going to suffer so we can experience glory. At least I don't. He is our hope of glory, not suffering. His power living in us empowers us, enabling us, and teaching us. It's Him doing that work in us and through us. We sang the song, Channels Only. We're only a channel, a vessel. Verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He, Paul preached Jesus. That was the focus of his preaching. The goal of Paul's ministry was to bring people to maturity in Christ and not to dependence upon himself. Teaching every man in all wisdom Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. If you're wise, you will listen. A scoffer doesn't listen. We are to preach Jesus. We are to warn. And we are to teach in wisdom. Why do we do this? Why was Paul doing this? He says that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We want you to grow spiritually mature in Christ. In Apostle Paul's ministry, he labored to bring about this maturity of getting people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 29, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. He labored in his ministry. He toiled the word toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. For this I toil that you might be mature in Christ. The word striving also carries the idea of a struggle. But it doesn't leave us thinking all his work is done in his own power and strength. Struggling with all his energy, capital H, which is so powerfully works in me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In closing, I'm going to read a few verses from Ephesians 6. You don't need to turn to this. 
Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. In the power of His might. In His strength. It's His power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So what is our part? Verse 10 talked about His strength. It's His power. And then we read the verses about what we're to put on. We're to put on. We're to wrestle. We're to take up. We're to stand firm. We're to take, we're to pray, we're to stay alert and make, in making supplication, which is earnestly asking God for things. Be vigilant in prayer. God empowers, God enables with his mighty strength. As Paul told the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May the Lord add his blessing. Shall we have a song?